Welcome to the RPG Podcast. I'm Randall James, your assistant to the regional manager, and with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. Howdy. All right. Welcome to episode 14, the 15th episode of the RPG Podcast. Tyler, what are we going to do today? Today, we're going to talk about kind of a collection of things. You might know them by different names minions, pets, companions, hirelings, sidekicks, followers. Basically, all those extra non-player characters who follow your character around doing cool stuff. So it's like the NPCs that sometimes the players PC, or sometimes the DM PCs. So they're like PCs, but they're NPCs. Except for the players. Sometimes they're part of your character, sometimes they're not. Sometimes you adopt an NPC and drag them around, maybe against their will. Basically, it's all the same thing at the end of the day. It's another... It's another character in the world who follows your party around for whatever shenanigans they get into. Yeah, and a spoiler, the, the DM's guide says that if you die, you could just become your friend. And that sounds terrible. But anyway, yeah. I guess has this always been part of tabletop gaming? Absolutely. So the earliest versions of Dungeons & Dragons had rules for hirelings. The rules originated from Chainmail, which was a medieval fantasy war game essentially and a lot of the early rules were very simulationist so you had a lot of rules around building a following gaining a stronghold things like that and that was very much the natural progression of your character you started out as a level one nobody and as you gained levels your character accumulated a following gold influence and then eventually you'd get like land and you'd have a small army and cool stuff like that Wizards would get apprentices, fighters would get armies, barbarians would get a horde of smaller barbarians. I'm imagining the Keanu Reeves meme with like big Keanu and little Keanu. (laughs) Yes, and the maxes. The rules have obviously changed across every edition and they're different between every RPG rule set. But the presence of those kind of followers assisting your character has existed since the earliest days of Dungeons and Dragons and similar RPGs, and it continues to this day, and it's an interesting mechanic to explore. Yeah, but I mean, my, my character is basically a superhero. What do I need? Partners or hirelings or sidekicks? Well, there's a lot of fun stuff that you can do with this. So like Tyler said, some of these are built into the character. Your very obvious examples from 5th edition, you've got your, your Beastmaster Ranger, your Drake Warden now from Fizzbands. Technically speaking, you could even say the Swarm Keeper, although you're probably not going to play those as intelligent. But nothing stops you, I guess, if you really want to. Whether or not this is a part of your character innately, or whether it's something that you pick up via DM Fiat, here's a character, or you know something like you go out and pay money for it, it introduces some really interesting mechanics. It introduces a way for the... DM to give you information that is not just a messenger from the king. No, it it introduces a a way to generate buy-in, like we talked about a bit in the fear episode, because here is your animal companion, your friendly low-level wizard in town who knows things, your whatever who can be targeted by things. As far as, you know, what it can bring to a character, there's a lot. Maybe it is a lot of power, maybe it's not a lot of power. Whether or not you're a superhero, if you're a superhero in a vacuum, who are you going to save? Yeah, that makes sense. The best purpose for a sidekick is actually just to have somebody to save. I think it's maybe worth for listeners. Let's hit kind of what we want to talk about in, in this episode. So, of course, we're going to talk about all the different features in 5e. 
we want to talk about Pathfinder 2. We'll spend a little bit of time on like 3X and Pathfinder 1, maybe a few other tabletop rule sets. And then we want to talk about like, as a player character and as a DM, how do we role play generally across different rule sets with these things? Yeah, so so you went through some of the 5e classes and, and subclasses that are available to us. So we have the Beastmaster, uh, we have the Drake Warden. Let's talk about them. Player's Handbook gave us the original version of the Beastmaster, and there are some other, some other kind of follower mechanics that we'll talk about too. So the Beastmaster is the most prominent example because that's the one where your companion is the most visible part of your character. So your beast companion is as much a part of your character as a longsword. They follow you into battle. They are part of your character's capabilities, and they are, for all intents and purposes, a class feature. Now, since it's an animal, they're not intelligent. They're, it's a slightly better than average animal. So you can have your wolf or your bear or whatever, and it can do tricks, but nothing beyond what an animal can do. But if you have pets, you know animals have can have very big personalities. And in a lot of parties, the Beastmaster's companion will frequently become the party's mascot in a lot of ways. Because who doesn't like to have an adorable puppy following around on adventures? So I've actually never played in a campaign where there's a Beastmaster with an animal companion. Anytime that I've looked at it, my concern has been that this is going to be really cool through like the first six levels. And then the fact that I can, what is it, like you have to take a CR quarter or less animal as your companion? Something like that. I forget the exact number, but it, it does advance based on your character stats, so it'll get more hit points, and it adds your proficiency bonus to like its attacks and its AC and things like that. So it's not going to fall over as you gain levels, but the problems with the player's handbook version of the Beastmaster run a lot deeper than the stats. I want to even just answer that question. So, cool, I get a, I think it is CR quarter. I take a creature of that level or below, and sure, as it advances, it gets additional hit points and it gets to add my proficiency bonus, you know, two, three, four points to to certain rules that it's making. You know, when we talked about character optimization, we talked about the opportunity cost. And what's the opportunity cost of taking that creature and that whole skill tree versus other things that are available to the ranger? It seems like it'd be a lot of fun for the RP, but from just a crunch standpoint, my naive eyes say that it doesn't appear to be worth it. For the original Beastmaster, you are exactly correct. Specifically because the original Beastmaster, you had to spend your action to command your pet, which <laughs> means that you don't get to do anything else, basically, for your turn. I have a great longsword, but hey, <laughs> just uh, meow at it. Go. Right. <laughs> now, of course, the Tasha's version of the Beastmaster fixes this by changing it to bonus action which is what it should have been the whole time. Great. Once you get to the second iteration of the Beastmaster, the opportunity cost is pretty negligible. So at, at that point, your opportunity cost is instead of getting like my neat planar warrior teleport and force damage shenanigans, or instead of getting my Gloomstalker, I am the edgiest ranger to have existed. And also if we're fighting in the dark, I win lol you get a lot of power out of having basically another chess piece to move around. Your animal companion is very helpful in terms of it is a thing that can draw attacks. And as it gets all these extra hit points, that's a thing that 
that is hit points that are not being put on to you or your friends. So that's very helpful. It can do some tricks if you do things like take a wolf, then it will happily trip things. Yeah, I brought my blink dog. I wish that was an option. Suddenly, Ah. Charlie barks in all three of our recordings. (laughs) I mean, realistically, once you get past the overwhelming, glaring flaw of how they did the first version, opportunity cost is you're not able to do other cool things, but instead you have a whole other reasonably effective party member who will unerringly follow your commands. Opportunity cost? Not really for that, and for the Drake Warden as well. Those are really good because that's a whole extra body, that you know, a whole extra set of action economy, basically. If what you are doing is increasing the number of attacks that you make by 25% as a party, that's really good. Yeah, actually, let, let's hit on this, right? So Vizman's Treasure of Dragons, we just put out in RPGbot.news. We, we had an episode where we talked about the contents. We, we hit at the Drake Warden, but in this context, let's dive a little deeper. So what is the Drake Warden buying us beyond even the Tasha's Beastmaster. So it follows a lot of the same mechanics as the Tasha's Beastmaster. The five or six years between the release of the Player's Handbook and Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, Wizards really figured out how they wanted pet classes essentially to work. Because we've gotten so many versions of how to command a thing that is functionally a combat pet. The Beastmaster had the, I spend an action to command my pet, and then later I can give up an attack to have my pet attack. There were familiars in the player's handbook, and they just take verbal commands but have their own turn. There are summoned creatures that will just obey verbal commands. And then finally with Tasha's, we got to command your thing, to command your combat pet, you spend a bonus action. And that shall be the rule. Everything from here on uses that rule. It's very simple. It's very efficient. And it keeps your turn from becoming burdensome, overly complicated in a way that becomes burdensome because you're essentially taking two turns for two or more creatures, especially if you're summoning like, ah, yes, here are my eight tiny velociraptors. Yeah, the rules have definitely gotten better over time. The opportunity cost has actually diminished because of the improvements to the action economy. But just that, Making the pet work in the action economy is such an important thing across rule sets. I'm honestly surprised that 5th edition didn't get that one right in the player's handbook, and more recent rule sets have learned from that. Yeah, it's super important to be able to command your pet in a way that doesn't essentially cost your entire turn. I think that makes perfect sense. And actually, I think I really want to dive into this when we talk about like both from a DM's perspective and a PC's perspective, how do we leverage companions? Because I think we have a few other, let's say, friends to talk about. And then I think a lot of how we would leverage them are probably going to come together. Does that seem right? Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So the Drake Warden seems really cool early on. Right, it can fly, but you you just get to ride it on the ground. And then finally, when you when you hit level 15, perfected bond, like you finally actually figured out, what if you flew while I was sitting here? That's exciting. Yeah, I've wanted to be able to ride something meaningful since since the player's handbook came out, and we've done an episode where I got to beat on 5th edition's mounted combat rules. The Drake Warden is the closest we've ever gotten to a sensible mount option. So the single Wait, remaining... To be clear, a sensible mount or a sensible flying mount? Bull. Period mount? Okay, yeah. wow. All right, keep going. So, so there's... <laughs> you tell. 
I think we talked about this in the Mounted Combat episode a lot, but basically, if you're going to ride your pet, it needs to be durable enough that it can't just be killed by the first fireball that it encounters. And in 5th edition, you want it to be unintelligent, because if it's intelligent, it takes its own turn on a separate initiative, and that will just mess up whatever you want to do. If you want to be in melee, riding an intelligent creature is basically impossible. Now, the Drake Warden got so close, like so annoyingly close. They have eight intelligence and they speak a language, so they're clearly intelligent. I've been in plenty of parties with eight intelligence characters in them. Real life, too. I think there are three in our current party. <laughs> Actually, yeah, uh, there are. <laughs> we, are not, we are not smart people. Yeah. The Drake companion has eight intelligence, so it's intelligent, which means it's an independent mount. The rules for the Drake Companion feature specifically say that it takes its turn immediately after yours. An unintelligent mount, like a horse or whatever, you take your turn at the same time and can just intermingle your actions. Like, your horse can move, you can attack, your horse can continue moving. And that's awesome. That is exactly what you want if you want to be dude on a horse with a lance. Drake Warden got so close, but since it takes its turn after yours, the best you can do is ready in action to attack in melee when your drake gets into melee range. And it's awesome that it can eventually fly when you ride it, because Beastmaster doesn't even have an option for something that you can ride. But, like, so close. Swing and a miss. Okay, I feel like this is easily fixable, though. And I'm just going to assert this, that everybody is going to agree. DMs at home, write this down. Just give your motion walking, or if you have flying, to the creature. Let the drake move its motion on your turn, but still separate the rest of the combat features to you take your actions and then the Drake takes its actions. Would that be game-breaking? I'll be perfectly honest, I think it's needlessly complicated. There is no real reason to not just let them act as unintelligent mounts. That is a three-second house rule fix. It's just, yes, you can treat it as an unintelligent mount. Done. There's no reason not to allow that because it's a class feature. Well, if you did listen to the Mounted Combat, you know, we, we did sort of make an interesting point of like, okay, well, what if you are writing something Spartan and it wants to leave for whatever reason? If your DM is making your class feature want to take you away from the fight, you have larger problems than what can be solved mechanically. Although that could quickly get meta of like, the player is saying, I know that my PC would want to go in. I think I'm going to die. I think that my mount would know I'm going to die. Like, you could you could do that rigmarole, but yeah, I think your DM working against you is a problem, and I don't think we actually have to get more specific than that. But vice versa, you would know when the moment's right to maybe have that intelligent mount make a different decision when it advances the story and improves everybody's fun. I want you to shelve that thought for a little while because we're going to talk about 3.x and Pathfinder First Edition a little bit, and we're going to come back to that and okay. in, in a way that might surprise you, Randall. Okay, Dax, I have, I have no idea. We're going to talk about sidekicks. Actually, let's go and talk about sidekicks. Are we ready to yeah. do it? I had, do it? I had actually never opened up the player handbook to sidekicks. I've heard people talk about it. I had no idea. I actually liked it. I thought it was pretty good when I read it with my eyeballs. I'm a little bit worried about what you two are going to say about it, though. So I'm going to say it's, it's not in the player's handbook. The rules for sidekicks first appeared in the Essentials Kit and then got reprinted in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Uh, I mean, okay. I really like the sidekick rules. I yeah, think I they're awesome. 
I'm going to correct myself. So I found it on D and D beyond link directly. And I just assumed it was in the PHP. That's my mistake team. (laughs) Gotta love D and D beyond. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. The sidekick rules really solved a lot of interesting problems with one solution. One of the selling points of the essentials kit is it's very easy to run as an introduction to D and D and It's built so that you can play with one player and one DM and go through the whole adventure. And there were three follow-up adventures published for free on D&D Beyond. If you buy the Essentials Kit, you get a code that you can redeem for the adventures on D&D Beyond, but it'll take you to, like, level 12 or 13. So you can play, like, a a multi-year campaign with one player and one DM, but you still need that four-person party. So you fill out the party with sidekicks. Now, sidekicks aren't going to be as strong as a player character class, but they're way simpler. So it's really easy to say, okay, you, single person in the party, you have three or four sidekicks, however many you guys decide that you need, and you can control them, but their turns are very simple. The spellcasters get one or two leveled spells at each spell level. The fighter equivalent is basically just a stat block and attacks. The rogue equivalent is skills attacks and it has like a bonus action help thing so they're built to not be a ton of work and that solved the we just need somebody in this party to fill out the party problem if you need a healer you just want use one of the spellcaster sidekicks it works great in addition to that it also solved the problem of help my party has adopted an npc and is dragging them into a dungeon I don't have combat stats for this random bartender that they've dragged along with them. What do I do? So you just flip open the sidekick rules. Ah, yes. First level warrior. Cool. One of the other things that I have talked about really enjoying is the way that 5th edition is a really useful framework. Where Tyler was just talking about like, ah, yes, here's a human. Let's apply these classes to it. Realistically, you can take these sidekick rules and you can skin them to do kind of anything. I mean, if you want to to ignore the way that intelligent items work so far and you're like no i, I want to have this animate suit of armor that follows me but i don't want to use any particular stat block i great this animate suit of armor is a warrior sidekick there's a lot of flexibility in how you use that so one of the main drawbacks for sidekicks is that they're intended to count as a party member for splitting xp we sort of touched on this in the mountain combat episode but realistically, I would say that in 5th edition, I haven't actually yet encountered a game where people are trying to do XP numerically. It is far more common and indeed literally written into some modules and the absolute word of law for Adventures League to use Milestone. At that point, if you're trying to figure out like, okay, well, how do I penalize the fact that they just have this cool new thing? Make yourself a little bit harder if you want. If you're going to say, great, I'm just going to increase the hit points of all monsters by 25% to account for the one extra 25% more players, essentially, then that's one option. The nice thing about that is that it does sort of give you some scaling while simultaneously not making it more lethal to the players, which is always a thing that you want to keep an eye on whenever you're tweaking numbers. I was going to say, I don't know if that math actually checks out, but... (laughs) It's solid (laughs) advice, though. Just bumping up the hit points, that won't increase the lethality, but does make the combat last just as long, even with the other party member. That's solid advice, Random. Thank you. Sidekick rules are great. They're very flexible. 
be aware that, that you are adding power to the party and that the way that that's intended to be balanced is almost always ignored. So make sure that you are balancing it some way so that the players don't feel like it's just a walk in the park. You know, you always talk about the social fix, right? The social fix is probably that if you have three PCs, probably each of them doesn't get a sidekick for the action economy, for just maintaining turns during combat. Like, for all the reasons. For all the reasons, it's a terrible idea. We probably don't want a sidekick here. If you're going to run a three-person party, everyone knows you should instead just run them as Gestalt characters. Oh, no, I'm in the wrong edition again. <laughs> We've done that game. It's fun every time. It really is. <laughs> sidekick for every party member, probably not something you want to do in your typical four-person party. Like Randall, the game that you and I are in right now, we've got four party members. So if everyone had a sidekick, nothing would get done. Yes. Uh, but in smaller parties, that can work really well. Like I'm, I'm running a game right now for two players. Uh, we're doing Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And we have a ranger and a druid. And I'm thinking about introducing some sidekicks to kind of like fill out those uh, 100%. missing proficiencies. I might take the sidekick rules and one of the things with sidekick rules is they say you can just throw the sidekick levels onto any creature with CR, I think, one half or below. So I might make Charles Barkley, the blink dog, a sidekick and bring him into the campaign. I love this. I want to hear about this when this happens. This sounds amazing. Gosh, I hope it works. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the other thing is a sidekick, you know, it can be controlled by the player character, but a sidekick could also be controlled by the DM. And so, so especially if you have newer players, you're trying to introduce the game, it might make sense to say like, okay, you picked what you wanted to play. And I think that's fantastic. You have no healer. So here's your healer. And I'm going to manage this for a little bit. And then as soon as you're ready, I'm going to hand it off to you. You know, exactly. it could be a gay, you know, when, when you don't have a, a huge group, it might be a great way to balance it. Yeah. And it also means that no one, no one feels like they're getting stuck as the heal bot, which admittedly way less of a problem in fifth edition but people coming from video games might not realize that and everyone might look at the cleric or the druid or whatever and say no that is the healer class and i'm not touching that yeah. so no one builds anything that can heal and the dm says okay fine here's your sidekick they're a cleric equivalent spellcaster they have cure wounds etc it's fine we'll work with it yeah i think we said this at the top but i kind of want to i want to run through it again because i think it is worth for folks who maybe haven't looked at the rules so we have three canonical sidekick Types? Class, classes? Classes. Uh, yeah. Classes good? Okay. So we have the expert, which as I read it is basically, what do you suck at from the, the skill list? Okay. And, and like what keeps biting you? Like lots of uh, locks to be picked and nobody has the ability to do this or lots of people to be, you know, intimidated or, or, or harassed and nobody really has the charisma to pull that off. Great. We're going to grab the expert. We're going to put everything that we need to into the skills that we're missing. And now we have somebody who rounds us out skill-wise. Is that the right read? Yeah, that's about right. And then we should probably try to not get them killed. I mean, hopefully yeah. you get attached to your, your NBC party members, like at least enough not to throw them into pits. No, exactly. Unless that's their, yeah, that's, that's their whole thing. That's what they're good at. No. We have the spellcaster, which actually, this is another aside, and I apologize. I had never heard of the idea of a one-half or one-third spellcaster until offline the two of you explained it to me. And as soon as you did, it made perfect sense. But I, I don't know how many people at home are actually familiar with it. I guess, do one of you want to kind of take us through, like, what is a full spellcaster versus a half versus a third? In 5th edition, it's a lot less complicated. 
there's no real such thing. If your class is intended to cast spells, you are a full caster, you get up to level 9 spells. So that's your bard, your cleric, your sorcerer, your wizard, druid. Uh, your druid. Yes, thank you. And, and the telltale sign of that is that every two levels, you get access to one additional higher spell slot, right? Exactly. So, yeah. So every other level, you will get access to an additional tier of spell slots that goes from 1 to 9. And then what we would call a half caster is something like a paladin, a ranger, where they never get spell slots above five. Yes. And that's much more slowly. And in fact, they don't get spells to start in general. You know, they, they will get spells at level two or three, I think. Two. In previous editions in 3.x, you had bards. Bards were the two-thirds caster who would get spells up to level six. And because they were bards, they had a bunch of bard only skills, or bard only spells that were balanced around the fact that, like, ah, oh, yes, this is a six level spell, but you're not going to get it until level 17. So it's going to be crazy powerful. It's Odo's Irresistible Dance, which has since been ported into this, this edition and, and balanced for being where it is and the fact that bards are full casters now. That's the whole like fractional casters. It's basically just how often do you get your spells and also how critical to the play of your character are they? Is a paladin going to be casting a whole lot? Probably not. Maybe some, but you know, mostly that's that's not the point of the character. And so in 5e, our half casters, they'll gain access to additional spell slot every four levels. And the, exactly. the spell caster sidekick is a half caster. So the highest spell level that they're ever going to get access to is five. And they have three kind of subclasses within this which is you can be a damage dealer, you can be a healer, so the mage, the healer, or you can be, I guess, would you consider it a controller? The prodigy, which is a, they, they say, it, or the spell list comes from bard and warlock. You know, controller is probably accurate. Bards get really good control options. Warlocks do too, to kind of a lesser extent, and depending on the options you look at. But yeah, controller probably fits the role of the prodigy pretty well. Okay. And so again, like if you have no healer, this is something access or something available to you. If you have nothing that can deal magic damage, you could take something that can deal mag magic damage. If you have nothing that can cast haste on you and you really wish you were faster, it's something that you can go grab too. And then the final is, is the warrior. So somebody who can just go out there and take punches and get knocked down, but they get up again. <laughs> Never yeah, you're be able a budget to... fighter, essentially. <laughs> on a budget I, probably because you're paying I, I never expected this podcast to venture into Chumbawamba but there we go <laughs> um, and and speaking of venturing as we did touch on 3.x for a second so there's a, a particular thing that I wanted to cover while technically speaking there are mechanics for leadership in 5th edition and they're fairly similar it's much harder to optimize around in 5th edition than it was in 3.x because of how leadership scales where it's based on your charisma and that's a intentionally bounded system in 5th edition. You're not supposed to get it above 20 as opposed to, you know, say 80 because you're a intermediate deity and convinced Bahamut to walk away from his post and let you fill it in because now all of a sudden you have 100,000 followers to worship you. But suspiciously specific, okay. Suspiciously specific. <laughs> Leadership also introduces cohorts, which is a... Wait, so, okay, real quick. Leadership is not a qualitative thing when you're saying leadership or no. Leadership is a leadership a is a quantitative feat. Yes, it is okay. a literal feat that you had to be level six to take. 
and there's a table and you know how much we love tables like <laughs> if your hit dice plus charisma score is this number you have this many followers by default they are the npc classes which are actually interestingly very similar to the sidekick classes in 3.x you could trade some of the levels you would always have for instance and it calculated it backwards because you would get a certain number of first level npc followers and then 10% that many second level, and then half that many third, half that many fourth, and on down until you run out. But you could trade some of those for, like, PC levels. So, you know, if you wanted to have a follower that was a cleric to res you, if you were sufficiently powerful, you could get that. Or, or you know, that kind of jazz. I don't need to learn. I can convince other people to learn. Right. Well, and here's the fun part. So this leadership concept did, in fact, borrow stuff from all the way back into Chainmail. You could get modifiers to leadership your leadership score included things like has a keep or how many times have I let my cohort die and it would make it harder for you to attract things. Seems right. Then also, while, while we're in 3.x for a second, one other really interesting thing that was introduced in a Pathfinder supplement, a third-party Pathfinder adventure called Way of the Wicked, really good if you are ever trying to play Pathfinder First Edition, would highly recommend. It is a intentionally evil campaign where you must be some flavor of evil to be a character, and then that's the story is based around that. They include rules for evil organizations, which work really well, actually, until you realize that the by far the most effective thing to do with your evil organization, if you don't have a particular like political motive to accomplish, is to literally just run them as a money laundering front and make money through legitimate business. I was playing a sorcerer when I was playing this campaign with Tyler and a few other people, and it turned out that by far the best thing for me to do was to just run my youth group as, you know, the Italian restaurant front and use that to make money, and it broke the game. I was generating far more money than I knew what to do with to the point where I started just making a spaceship. <laughs> the rules are really good. Just make sure that you watch for that edge case. 3-5 leadership was pretty nuts. You could do a lot of things with it. There's no ceiling on how high you could get your leadership score. So you could just rack up mountains and mountains of followers and just solve the game's problems with your army. We don't have a comparable mechanic for that in 5th edition, which probably a good thing. It seems like they learned something, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but... One, one problem that people have had with 5th edition since its release is I'm a high-level character. I've got all this gold. I can't just buy magic, magic items. What do I do with this gold? Hirelings. That's when you bring in hirelings. You crack open the player's handbook. You go to the end of the equipment chapter, and there's a table with, like, hirelings and services, and you can hire skilled and unskilled NPCs to do stuff for you at, like, some pittance for... I think skilled NPCs are two gold pieces a day, and the skilled NPC is described as basically anything that requires a proficiency. So, okay, my, my skilled soldier is in leather armor and proficient with a sword. That's all I need. But for two gold pieces a day, I can hire myself an army and throw it at my problems. Okay. One, I love that they put people under equipment, and we're just going <laughs> to... Okay, good. All right, we're ready Meanwhile, to go on. Meanwhile, Yeah. <laughs> Two, how do you actually... So I have that soldier that I'm paying because they have a proficiency bonus. How do I use that 
soldier in combat? That is a tricky question because the short answer is it's still a person. And so that is very up to DM interpretation. Unlike a class feature, this is not something where you're going to have a reasonable expectation that it will do everything you tell it to. They don't have good rules for it. It Maybe it's... Well, it's obviously an intelligent mount. So, (laughs) you know, if you're writing it, you're not wrong. Is it persuasion? Are are you going to have to roll persuasion for everything you tell it to do? Maybe for just unreasonable things you tell it to do? I'm I'm thinking we're going to, here we go, we're doing this. I'm thinking of uh, Brendan Fraser's The Mummy. And and it's like, hey, everybody, go attack the mummy. And then, of course, everybody fleeing. Like, what role would I have to get to actually get? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Behold, the lich, which has killed thousands of, 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 of folks. Everybody go attack the lich. No, of course not. Yeah, I'd say probably either persuasion or intimidation, depending on how you want to lead those NPCs. I'm also looking for really low intelligence soldiers in this case. <laughs> that shouldn't be hard. They're commoners. <laughs> yeah, but yes, you're right. The players throwing an army at their problems is another problem that has kind of lingered between editions because have we discussed the Elminster problem before, Randall? No, no. I say the words you just said again. Okay, the Elminster problem. So there's a famous character in the Forgotten Realms named Elminster. He is a high-level wizard. And when you get sufficiently powerful as a wizard, you get to a point where you can solve society's problems. Like, just, I am a wizard. I can cast X, Y, and Z. Society's problems are now functionally solved so long as I have enough time to dedicate to this. So the Elminster problem is essentially, why doesn't he? given sufficient power to solve all problems, why isn't every problem solved by Elminster? It's it's like to draw other comparisons, Superman. Why doesn't Superman solve world hunger or global power shortages? Because he's Superman. He has the capacity to produce infinite cold or infinite heat or fly around the planet sufficiently fast to reverse time, whatever. So in a world where with an infinitely powerful, benevolent wizard, Mm Why does evil or bad exist? Pretty much. That's a novel concept. I've never considered this. Yeah, it, it, it has no real world parallels that you can draw for arguments that people make about anything. No. None at all. This is okay. Cool. Uh, so what's the resolution? Hirelings. Kind of. Let's see. So, so we should talk about the Elminster <laughs> problem. Okay, good. Like, the Elminster problem should basically be its own episode because solving it is surprisingly both hard and simple at the same time but when you get sufficiently powerful the budget that you have to manage essentially is your time you can't be everywhere you can't be in every cave full of monsters you can't crawl every dungeon because you have to eat sleep teleport between problems all those things so the way you solve that problem is hirelings you say i am a level 15 PC, I have all of the money in the world, and like, ah, yes, there are simultaneously three apocalypses going on, fine. I'm going to go deal with one, and I'm going to hire an army to throw at the other problems. As soon as you bring those NPCs into, like, a dungeon or whatever, everything goes off the rails. Going back, I don't know how many editions, there's the classic problem of, oh, great, someone wants to play a necromancer. (laughs) They're going to raise an army of the dead. 
and they're going to parade that army of the dead into every single dungeon, and then every dungeon just becomes, okay, how many skeletons does this cost? I'm not saying that I explicitly mentioned Dread Necromancer when we talked about Heroes of Horror for a reason, <laughs> but the short answer is all of your second-level spell slots are control undead, and all of your third-level spell slots are extended control undead, and the back of the napkin math that I worked out several years ago, you got something like 2 to the 12th power, 20 hit dice skeletons controlled. Something like that. <laughs> two, 2 to the 12th. Uh -huh. Okay, so we're at what? 4,098? And then yeah. you rolled that many D20s. No, 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 no. No, sorry. Okay. They, they, are D, they are 20 hit die skeletons. Oh, 20. Okay, so, okay good, good, good. Yeah, uh, so those are big, chunky skeletons, not your, like, I found a peasant and turn them into a skeleton skeleton but you could do that too you could just instead of having one 20 hit die thing you just have 21 hit die things and there's your army and that that's actually a fun character optimization exercise in any given edition just see okay if i build a hypothetical necromancer how many skeletons can i have the answer may surprise you <laughs> yeah that's like diablo 2 that was that was totally my jam i think that would be a lot of fun to play the, the number is more than 10, I'm guessing, in 5e? So 5th edition probably... Gosh, I can't remember what the number is in 5th edition. The ability to control undead, there are enough options between various classes and spells that the number is hard to calculate off the top of my head. You can't have an army, but you can have enough of them that it's a problem. Okay. Uh, and, and so I, I guess it, it could be worth hitting all in one, one batch. So what haven't we talked about for sidekicks, hireling companions, friends, partners, you know, all, 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 all along in 5e. So we have, we can animate undead. Uh, we haven't talked about familiars. Yeah. So familiars are, are super simple. They obey verbal commands. They have their own turn, which can be somewhat annoying to manage if you're using them for like delivering spells or whatever. But the best part about familiars is all that they cost is the time to summon them. And I think it's like 10 gold pieces worth of material components. They're not hugely complex. They have a very specific and limited number of things that they can do with their actions. And short of some surprising cases like casting Dragon's Breath on them, generally they're not going to cause too much trouble in combat. But then everyone gets an owl because it has flyby, so it flies in, uses help, flies out, and use that to have rogues murder things. Every non-player character that you bring into an encounter can complicate things and become problems. But 5th edition has, over time, eventually gotten it mostly right to the point where it's just bonus action, do things. Okay. All right. So I think we have beaten the 5e drum to death. <laughs> I, there's a few other things I think we could talk about, but yeah, let's let's talk Pathfinder 2. Yeah, so Pathfinder 2, I think, got the entire issue of pets, minions, etc. I think they got it right on the first try in the core rulebook. They have a very simple core system just called minion. Like, it is a tag that you put on a creature, and when a creature is a minion, it essentially belongs to some character. And that character can control that character by spending an action. And if you're not familiar with PF2, you get on your turn three actions. You can spend one action to do any combination of things. Some things cost more actions. So commanding a minion costs one action. And then once you command your minion, they can take two actions that you dictate. 
So if you have an animal companion, a familiar, an inventor's automaton thing, if you've created an undead, like a skeleton or a zombie or whatever, those are all minions. If you've summoned a thing, it's a minion. Like anything that your character says, I now have this combat pet. It is a minion. You spend one action. It gets to take two actions. And that's it. That is as simple as it gets. And, and I want to add to this by making it more complex, though. So talking about having three actions and you can give up one to then gift two to your minion. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, like you can often make if, if an attack takes one action, you can make consecutive attacks. But most actions have a, a penalty for attempting to make a second attack. And so that makes it even more attractive to say, well, I'm going to attempt this first attack. You know, either it went well or it didn't, but I know I'm going to take a penalty next time. So instead, I'm actually going to use a second action on my minion where I won't have that same issue. I won't be taking that penalty to take that attack. So to me, that seems very attractive. Yeah, and it's a great reason to explore animal companions, special mounts, things like that. Special mounts are actually just animal companions because Pathfinder 2nd Edition managed to solve a bunch of concepts with one rule. They also managed to solve the I have too many pets problem, like I'm a necromancer and I'm going to walk my army into this room you can only command two minions at a time. So no matter how many minions your character might have on your turn, even though you get three actions, you can only command two minions on one turn, and the rest of your minions just stand around slack-jawed, I guess. So there's a mechanical disincentive to parade your army into a dungeon or whatever. They leave you room to build around minions, so you can still have, like, I have an animal companion, and I have this zombie that I summoned, and they're going to go do most of my fighting with me, (laughs) but I still have to spend an action doing something like walking around or smack-talking the enemies. So in 5e, it's typical that without giving any command, they'll take the, I think, dodge action. So if I don't tell you to do something, you, you will dodge by default. In Pathfinder, do you know what the default action is? If I do Storm 10 in, I give two commands. The other eight are sitting there like sitting ducks. Will they at least protect themselves or will they attack? Do they get reactions? Uh, Because there is no reaction, right? There there are reactions, yes. I believe minions can take reactions on their own without being commanded to do so. So if if they have a reaction mechanic like attack of opportunity, they could take that on their own. But that's not a default rule in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. So most things by default can't do like opportunity attacks or things like that. But if they have the ability to, a minion can on their own without being commanded. If you don't give them commands, if I remember correctly, they just don't take actions. It would be nice if they did some equivalent of 5th edition's dodge action, and maybe they do. I might have that one wrong. But generally, if you're going to bring a minion into combat, you want to command it every turn. Okay. Is there an equivalent to like the sidekick rules of like, here are some well-sculpted NPC-like minions that you might bring to the party? I don't know of one. There may be, and my ignorance is showing. I should probably figure that one out. I don't believe that there is an NPC sidekick rule kind of like that. There are enough options for bringing minions into the party between animal companions and things like that that you generally don't need to do that in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. There are a lot of good options for getting a pet, and because of the multi-class archetype rules, literally any character can have an animal companion. So if you want a pet, you can either use the ritual system and summon a zombie, or you can just get an animal companion. And then what, what kind of animal companions are available to us? The animal companions, if I remember correctly, don't use a specific animal as a base. 
you have a kind of like the primal companions from Tasha's. You'll have like this one's a predator and this one's a horse. Basically, there are there's a collection of templates, not the right word, like the the basic foundation of your animal companion, and you can skin it as whatever makes sense. And then you customize it over time by putting more feats into it. So your horse gets faster, your dog gets bigger teeth, things like that. No, that, so that makes sense. And, and then basically in Pathfinder, because like everything is basically built on top of this feat tree, in order to make your minion stronger, what that says is that you're dumping feats when they become available into things that make your minion stronger. Yeah, exactly. Just like any core competency of your character in any, well, not any RPG, in, in most RPGs that we talk about on the show, at least, your animal companion is part of your character. So the more you invest in that, the more powerful it gets. Cool. Awesome. As a player character, like strategically, how do we leverage the fact that we have these sidekicks or hirelings or we have these minions partnered with us? Uh, like one, one of the things that I was thinking about earlier that I figured I'd save till now is in, in 5e, where I have opportunity attacks, it might make sense to actually say, I'm actually going to put my sidekick over here engaged so that I can, you know, either force this, this enemy to take the disengage action, wasting an action to get away, or just pin it down until I'm ready to deal with it. So even just dispersing the crowd, like crowd control, feels really powerful. What are the tactics that we can be using in combat because we have our minions or sidekicks available to us? This brings up one very large question that we will not cover this week, although it will certainly be a point in a, a future episode, is are you playing with flanking? If you are playing with flanking, then literally stick any body on the other side of an enemy from you, and bam, you have advantage, which... I don't actually like, but again, that's a, a later conversation. Well, uh, one thing that, even by base rules, rogues rogues will love having any body near an enemy that they want to attack, because congratulations, now you can sneak attack. Area control, like you talked about, if you are using these sidekicks, having them do things like heal in combat, having them, you know, perhaps the, the prodigy having some area control spells would be very helpful. Realistically, it's really going to depend on how you've built this sidekick, what you're going to want to use it for. Hirelings, there's not much beyond what I just said, you know, or, or beyond being like expendable hit points, which, boy, let's take a look at your alignment real fast. Skeletons. Skeletons, exactly. Emergency triage skeletons. There you go, Karuma, <laughs> you're welcome. If you are using something like a familiar or like, like your paladin's summoned mount, something that you don't care about it dying, you can absolutely use that in a lot of more ways. Maybe you throw your horse at the boss and that gets you a turn of the boss murdering your horse instead of murdering your party member and the great. But realistically, it is going to really depend on how you've built that particular thing because apart from the things that I just mentioned, there's, there's not really much else helpful about just having a body in combat. It's more about what have you done to make this useful in the same way that you need to optimize your character. Well, sometimes just having a body taking up the space can be useful since you can't move through other creatures' spaces generally. There are some features that let you do that, but if you... Like, there's a lot of summon spells in the 5th edition player's handbook that let you summon X number of low CR creatures. So you could summon, like, here's eight cows. Here they are, they're large, they take up space, and the enemies can't get to me. So I'm just going to put a bunch of cows around my enemies, 
and that solves my enemies getting next to me problem, and I can just hit them with magic missile or whatever, or just drop cantrips on them. Area control by means of having disposable bodies can be very helpful, which is, like I said, skeletons, they, they fill space very nicely, and you don't feel bad when they die. You just bring them back. Yeah, and unfortunately, your bag of rats is too small to take up space. Oh, let's see. Fifth edition, the action economy is super important, perhaps more so than most other comparable RPGs. So having a summoned creature or having some pet feature like your primal companion, having those extra actions on your team's side is super helpful. Even if whatever you summoned is low level, like if you have an NPC hireling who's the equivalent of slightly weaker than a first level fighter, they can still take the help action, which is awesome. Like whoever makes an attack against that target gets advantage. So you've got a rogue, they're going to get advantage. If you have a spellcaster with like a powerful attack roll to be done, like inflict wounds or something like that, guiding bolt, whatever. Having, having NPCs that you don't care too much about who are willing to run into combat and take the help action can be super helpful at any level. And if your enemies kill those NPCs, like your, your skeleton, your summoned cow, whatever, that's actions that they're not spending attacking you in part. Yeah, so you're using your cows or your skeletons as tanks. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind. <laughs> There's no like damage overflow or anything. I don't know of an RPG that has like party damage overflow. It's like, ah, oh, yes, I've killed your cow. You take the remaining damage. Yeah. Like, let's yeah. imagine trample D trample. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh no. Um, let's let's not. Yeah, let's not. So even if you're summoning just like a whole bunch of things that are large and have one hit point, just the action cost for your enemies to create a path through those creatures can tip the balance in your favor a ton. So as a DM, you've got to be really careful not to let those things happen, or if they do happen, do it to your players. Yeah, this of course runs into the tank fallacy, though, which is why I didn't talk about this much, is like, if you do summon a bunch of cows, nothing stops it from just, for example, flying over the cows, or burrowing under the cows, or bull rushing the cows, because that's a bonus action that everyone can take. The AOEing the cows. Uh <laughs> But that's yeah. or not, sorry, not bull rush. Overrun. That's the one I wanted. Yeah. Um, I don't think Overrun made it into fifth edition. I am reasonably certain it did, but I will take a look at that. Okay. Offline. He anyway. successfully used it without his DM stopping him several times. So. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we're so, all equally confused, it'll be fine. Right. <laughs> we're, we're we're talking about using them as fodder, but the sidekicks or hirelings or companions, they can actually be really useful too. Like two things I'll call out. So on the, on the 5e side, like talking about the Drake Warden, the idea that they have resistance and they at higher levels can give you, how did this work? It's like strategically you can choose for a minute to take resistance. When you summon the Drake, you can pick an element and its bite gets bonus damage based on that element. You eventually get a breath weapon based on that element and it grants you resistance to that damage type. So like if you okay. chose fire, you get fire resistance and it can as a reaction give you or any any ally within 30 feet as its reaction can add a d6 of that damage type to your attack okay i mean so those are all fantastic skills to have i guess one of the things that i wondered with this if i happen to kill off my drake like oh i'm going into an ice temple i would like to get an ice drake so 
that's viable right yeah depending on the mechanic like drake warden is a good example because you can just spend any spell slot to resummon it even if okay. it's still there you just like i spent an action in a spell slot and you are now an ice strike at full hit points perfect uh, okay php beast master you had to spend eight hours to get a new companion the primal companions in tasha's it's just a spell slot and an action so depending on the feature it'll cost you something okay gotcha and then I, I was going to say for like Pathfinder 2, what you, you know, you, you stack up enough feeds, you can get to something like the, the Savage Animal Companions feed, where they get a strength bonus, they get additional damage to unarmed strikes, and every strike counts as magical damage. And so if you, you know, hopefully by the time you get to that level, you have some ability to do magical damage, but having, you know, hey, look, my companion can also do this. It feels super valuable depending on the fight. Yeah, definitely. Things with resistances will really mess you up if you can't do magic damage. Yeah. We talked earlier about like if if you have a smaller group, the idea that you might manage sidekicks, you might manage hirelings for them. We also talked about basically as a DM, don't be a jerk. So you know, try to be helpful, try to add to the fun. So just because something's an intelligent mount, it doesn't necessarily need to run away from combat because you know somebody stabbed it in the leg. That happens. It's combat. I don't know a single person who ever actually used this rule, but in 3.x and Pathfinder First Edition, your animal companions, technically you had to use an animal handling check to issue them commands. I played some combination of of third edition and Pathfinder for 15 plus years. Every time you give them a command, you have to make an animal handling check, and they still follow the rules for just I'm a trained animal. So if they take damage, they had to make a will save to avoid getting scared and running away. And I don't know a single person who ever used those rules because, because no they're... other class has a class feature that's going to get scared and run away. It's like the equivalent of a concentration check. Like, can, yeah. can you just stay here and not? Okay. Right. Yeah, that's terrible. Mechanically, you, you did have to worry about that. But while that was something that was technically printed, again, rule zero, <laughs> I, I kind of want to take this towards a, a thing that I tend to harp on more here, which is the the role-playing aspect of this. So I, I talked about this some in the, the Mountain Combat episode, but when you have these extra characters, it is really worth figuring out how you're going to determine who is running them. Is the player running themselves and their sidekick? Are you running their sidekick? Are you running their familiar? Are you running their summoned paladin mount? It can be a really good way to introduce things like lore that they have no other way of finding out paizo is renowned for giving pages and pages of content in their modules that a player has literally no way to interact with because there's just why you know it, <laughs> there's some really cool stuff that you can do and it really is going to focus more on play this in a way that's going to make the game more interesting make it faster make it fun you as the DM, while I will go back to my constantly harped on line that the only metric is everyone having fun, you are the one facilitating. Don't make a character that you are playing that is better than player characters because that is a real quick way to make people not have fun. Play something in a way that is consistent with what your players want. You know, if this is meant to be a familiar or a summoned mount, don't try and use this as a way to, ah, yes, I'm I'm going to suddenly introduce my brand of humor through this character all the time. To some extent, yes, add flavor to it. W one really important thing is you as the DM know the story. 
because you're writing it. On the one hand, you can take that to say, don't push your characters towards the thing that they may otherwise want to enjoy the process of finding themselves. And also don't pull them away from like, if your characters are walking into what they are just sure is the right answer and you know, man, that is either the deadest dead end or something lethal, then don't necessarily try and be controlling. Don't, <laughs> don't railroad them just because you have this maybe a little bit more vested interest because you're playing this character. Let them have their game and just use that as the opportunity to be a vehicle for fun little story beats. Yeah, so I saw the map earlier. I don't think we should go that direction. Right. Now, I want to I wanna bring in maybe a weird example of how to portray a sidekick really well. C-3PO. C-3PO has a very specific defined capabilities. He is a protocol droid. Diplomacy is this thing. He translates things. But the droids in Star Wars are meant to be a stand-in for the audience in, like, in the original trilogy, primarily less so in the future movies. But they're there to observe. They fill specific functions in the story from time to time when it's necessary for the story. Like, Jabba the Hutt needs to speak. C-3PO is his mouthpiece. But they never take away from the main characters. You would never look at them and say, the story is about this character. The character is along for the ride just as much as everybody else. I don't know what you're talking about. The story is clearly about R2-D2. Yeah. <laughs> Highest kill count of any character in the movies. <laughs> yeah. Obviously the prodigy. Yes. Uh, to some degree, droids actually are a better example than that too. Since droids can have such specialized functions in, in the world, in RPGs, in Star Wars games, it's very simple to solve a lot of your problems by just hiring a bunch of droids. So as a DM, they're a good example of what to do wrong and what to do right. You can let them solve every problem, but at that point, the game stops being a challenge. Or you can use them as a good stand-in for when the DM needs a mouthpiece or when the DM needs to move the story along. And when you say that, you're specifically talking about like Fantasy Flight. Yeah, Fantasy Flight Star Wars is a good example, but there were Star Wars RPGs before that, which I don't think we've talked about too much on the podcast, but the problem remains. Like, why build a doctor when I can hire a doctor bot? Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'd like to take a look at one of these things at one of these points, but it is not this day. All right. I think we did it. I think we did a whole episode. So, yeah, we have a question of the week this week. Question of the week is coming from at WebJWF. Uh, how does light work for 5e's Twilight Cleric? Let me jump in and, and answer this because I'm currently playing a Twilight Cleric, and please don't hurt me. <laughs> so there's a couple things that I think this question might mean. So first off, if you are just talking about their dark vision and the capacity to share their dark vision, it's basically just for 300 feet because they have enormous dark vision. Low light is treated as broad daylight, which so that's the dim light condition. And complete darkness is treated as dim. If you mean the Twilight Sanctuary, their channel divinity, when you use that, in addition to all of the other mechanical stuff, for 30 feet around you, it sets the light condition to dim. Now, because you have dark vision, that means you see in it perfectly fine, but that will override both darkness in the area and light in the area. Now, because it sets the light condition, but it is not a spell, you're not going to overpower things like a, a leveled spell that is trying to generate something, like 
the darkness spell or the daylight spell, at least it wouldn't in my game. That is something that is open to interpretation because it, technically speaking, it's a divine power, so maybe it's stronger, but realistically, I, I think I, I would say that it is not intended to be able to overpower actual leveled spells and is more just about messing with the natural light conditions. I think I'd interpret that the exact same way. Nice. All right. Well, thanks for that at WebJWF. All right. I'm Randall James. You can find me at AmateurJack.com and on Twitter and Instagram at JackAmateur. I'm Tyler Campster. You can find me online at RPGBot.net. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at RPGBOTDOTNET and find me at Patreon.com slash RPGBot. And I'm Random Powell. If you have found me, I have been doxxed. Please help. But realistically, you're most likely to find me here on RPGBot.net contributing articles and to the podcast. Although if you look in places people play games, you might find me as Harlequin or Harlequint. Awesome. All right. This episode was done with producer Dan. All hail the leisure Illuminati. You'll find affiliate links and source books and other materials linked in the show notes. Following these links helps us make this show happen every week. Uh, you'll find our podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, and share it with your friends. Ultimately, that's how we grow. That's how we get to keep doing the thing that we're, you know, at the moment really enjoying doing. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email at podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. All right, folks. All right, now real quick while we're still on air, and maybe this gets cut in later. <laughs> Tyler, open the DMG to page 272 you're gonna make me get my physical book how dare you i can't reach it i'm short okay <laughs> sorry what page 272 272 that's one of the pages okay there's there's your uh, there's your fully contribution lingering injuries what am i looking for cleaving through creatures injury overrun. Yes. overrun look at that overrun Technically speaking, it's an optional rule, but it's there. Huh. It's an action or a bonus action. The mover makes a strength athletics check contest. Huh. Wow. Well, that'll make athletics powerful. Yeah. Neat. Oh, actually, there's all kinds of good stuff here. Yeah. We could almost do our own episode. Just on, <laughs> just on variant rules. That would actually be a really fun episode. That would actually be a good episode. Uh, okay. Pathfinder Second down. Edition's variant rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide are awesome. Like, they've got some really cool stuff in there. I, I wanted to get this in on the web, on the, in the podcast, but I'm going to get it in now. So I went to the index to look up minions, and there's a paragraph on minions in the PF2 core rulebook. Mm hmm. With no page links whatsoever, like no page numbers whatsoever. <laughs> of course. So it's like, I read this paragraph on minions and I'm like, Paizo, you, you screwed me. Like, well, <laughs> I needed to study one thing. The, the problem with the core rulebook in second edition is the, the same rule is generally explained in three different places in the core rulebook. Like there's a, the first time it's, here's just the basics of this concept. Here's the actual thing. And here's the dungeon mastering section with the exact same text as the first time calling back to the second time. And the index is confusing. Real quick, so what is the heading that I'm going to be able to find that under so that we can link it in the show notes? Minions? No. The, the, that 272. Oh, look. Okay. Because you can't search for it. Like, it, it's, it's real hard to find. I'm almost there. Hitting cover. It's right before creating a monster. Combat options. combat options. Yeah. Neat. What chapter? What? Oh wait, creating encounters. Dungeon Master's Workshop, Chapter Nine, Combat Options. 
chapter nine combat options. There it is. Speed factor for when you want to play the flat. <laughs> uh, oh, look, there's the art with lasers. It's in there. Neat. <laughs> I forgot that was there. Uh, oh, she's got a yep. jetpack. Cool. There we go. And now I have pasted a link in podcast so that we can put it in the show notes. Okay. I will work on the show notes. I've got to go put my minions to sleep. <laughs>